some listening about listening this time as we fold back into our conversation with Anushka Gross and Robert Brewer-Young, a psychoanalyst and a luthier respectively, who pulled their understanding of listening in a book called Uneasy Listening, which attempts to discover what good listening involves and what it might facilitate in therapy, in music and in the world beyond. In a sense, the violin's a machine. It's a technology, um, and you're working with a thing. But the th one of the things I was interested in in the book, in, in a way, is that language is a technology and a machine, and that that's all we've got, really, to articulate ourselves through. And so the thing with the playing of a violin and this excitement about it, or the beauty of it, is because something sort of more than machinic has come out of this thing. You know, there are all these very practical cures and there's ideas of sort of evidence-based therapies and all those things, and they seem very clunky to me. But when you get into this other stuff, it can seem a bit esoteric and, oh, my goodness, you know, you're just a weirdo. What are you doing? <laughs> and so yeah, it's very hard to prove. It's very hard to have kind of empirical you know, data around how effective that stuff is. But I think if you allow for that with people, I mean, that's what helped me when I went to see a therapist. I didn't want to be told to be sensible. I wanted to have space to say things that seemed almost impossible to say or to see what you could do with speech or in a conversation or with a listener. And that's what actually helped. Between seeing and hearing those boundaries, words that are used to describe sound, they're quite often visual in English. Um, in French, there will be more words that are associated with taste. I mean, acide. Argentine, like, I mean, things along those lines. Yeah, amer. In English, it's quite often very visual. Something sounds shiny or brash or... It's things that we we appeal to a language of visual sense, um, whereas what does it mean when you apply a different kind of language or no language at all and you make sounds that imitate sounds and try to consent on what that experience is like and how it can be changed. Largely referring to a colleague who uses vowel sounds, so he's making sounds and singing. You know, which vowel projects the furthest? E which is the closest and projects the least, even if at the same number of decibels is ooh. And what are the differences between those? And, and what are the overtones associated with those different vowels? Thinking of things in terms of tone and sound and relations to vowels instead of to taste or to sight. Ooh, ow, and, the, you know, the nasal sound, ow, er, when you hold your nose, you know, sort of pushes on the thousand hertz level and um, very specific things happening with overtones. So it's an interesting modality of analysis. I mean, the, the, definitely with Lacanian psychoanalysis, my one, the focus on language is huge. Like, you never fuss about other things. It's just the person's speech. But, um, but with the acknowledgement that meaning is, a very, is just one element of language. <laughs> and so if you just say you're listening to language, that doesn't mean you're just listening to meaning. I mean, someone will say silvery, I'll know exactly what they're talking about. Someone else will say silvery and play a note, and I'll be lost in the woods. Um, so it's not even the vocabulary that necessarily clarifies an experience of listening, but the person who's putting that language to work and how they're doing it.
I'm interested in how people listen to the planet. You know, maybe where we are now is is a sort of uh, a lack of successful listening over, over quite some time. But I was thinking about your work, Robert, as as listening to wood and listening to material and listening to the natural world in a you know in a very kind of rarefied and specific sense. You know, it forces the question of materiality and what are these materials and where do they come from. You know the ebony forests are being poached to uh, it's horrific the trade in ebony and 98% of it goes to the musical instrument trade and um, so listening it's not even a process of what does ebony sound like it's like what does the entire economy of harvesting wood sound like a violin bow can a traditional violin bow can have in it pieces of the body of a whale, an elephant, a horse, a cow, a lizard, and a tortoise in one violin bow. And that's an enormous number of endangered species in half of those cases to put into an object in order to make music on a rarefied level. Are there other alternatives? Absolutely. Should we be looking for them? It seems obvious. I suppose I work with a lot of people with eco-anxiety. That would be a thing that many, many people talk about in their analysis. And you never hear someone walk into the room and say, hello, I've got eco-anxiety, <laughs> can you help? Usually they're talking about other things, but then they'll say, well, obviously I'm never going to have children because there's no world in which to have them. <laughs> we'll just, you know permeate their discourse there, there are difficulties around listening with that it's like as soon as you start to listen to what's happening and you properly hear it you know you listen to Antonio Guterres and you understand what he's saying that then in a sense you're in trouble and so there seems to be a problem with listening in the world or in you know rich countries that people just cannot hear what's constantly being said to them and and make changes accordingly you know yeah it's very distressing and the people who feel the distress are often the people who have heard it so you can understand why people don't want to hear I mean that's why everybody loves Cassandra I think in the environmental movement because she knows what she's talking about but she's treated like a mad person and that's why she's such a big reference for all of us mm. but um yeah, that's right, that once you understand what's happening, you do go mad because the, that you see people around... Like, I arrived here from Bond Street Station and I was in tears just walking through the tube station and I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to meet Luke and talk about things. But, yeah, it does give you a question of what do you then do? And that was the other thing in the book, that, that I'd met the First Nations elders who hadn't been listened to at COP. And, and I could see, of course, politicians and, and fossil fuel people don't want to listen to them because once you've heard what they say, their first-hand experiences of what happens to their rivers, their forests, their friends, their family members who get murdered, you, you can't bear it anymore, you can't relax. <laughs> and I think, yeah, when you get to that point of not being able to relax, it just becomes very difficult to accept. Everyone's saying, when's the collapse coming? That it's like, we're right in the middle if you include other people. Listeners Anushka Gross and Robert Brewer-Young, they're co-authors of the book Uneasy Listening, which is out now from Mac Books.